and welcome to Turn On The Lights. I'm Kate Armate. And I'm Don Berwick. With Turn On The Lights, we put a spotlight on ways to improve the healthcare system in the U.S. Thanks for listening. If you've grown up poor in America, you have experienced firsthand the connection between poverty and bad health. People at the low end of our economics ladder have had trouble getting access to the things that nurture health, secure food, reliable housing, recreational spaces, cheap and easy transportation, the best schooling, and much, much more. And when their health flags, so does their income. Fresh fruit and vegetables are good for your health, but that's not useful information when getting to them takes two changes on an unreliable bus route that passes three McDonald's on the way. You can know that getting exercise helps you live longer, but how does that help when the local streets are unsafe and gyms are few and unaffordable? Our guest, Dr. Alistair Martin, is a national leader in trying to get better health for everyone. Dr. Martin is an emergency room doctor at Harvard Medical School. He's founder of an amazing mobilization organization called Vote ER, trying to expand voting. And now he's about to launch an even bigger set of initiatives aimed at justice in America. Dr. Martin grew up in poverty, so he speaks from experience in his efforts to redress inequity and disadvantage at the roots. He's speaking with us just a few weeks after finishing a year as a White House fellow in the Biden administration. And look, if you're not inspired by what you're about to hear from Alistair, you're not listening. Alistair Martin, welcome to Turn on the Lights. We're so delighted to have you as a guest for our podcast. Thanks. Pleased to be here. Thank you so much, Sean and Kedar, and looking forward to the conversation. Let's just start with you. Would you mind taking a minute just of autobiography? Uh, who are you? Where did you come from? And how did you get into healthcare? And help us get to tell you a little bit. Absolutely. So my story starts in a low-income community in New Jersey, where my mom raised me as a single parent. My dad had left when I was fairly young. And what I experienced growing up in Neptune was really what I've then sort of as a physician come to experience on the other side. And that is that places like emergency departments mean a whole lot more than we think they do to low-income and vulnerable communities. Emergency departments are, for many community members, the kinds of places like the one that I grew up, sometimes the only place where folks are getting care. And so that was very much my experience. You know, my mom worked two jobs and once she came home at 8 p.m. and if I was sick, there was no pediatrician open. And so we went to the ER. She got cancer when I was about 11 years old. And, and that really was what sort of planted the seed of going into medicine for me long-term. But coming from where I came from, folks didn't become doctors, or lawyers, or business people. I just didn't see that, didn't have that, those examples, those models in my community, in my neighborhood. But a really actually traumatic situation happened to me when I was in my senior year of high school. I was involved in an incident that was later reported to be a gang-related incident. I was not part of a gang. I'd never been part of a gang, but it was close enough. And the high school that I was part of expelled me. I eventually had to get my GED. And through a long and winding and circuitous path, ended up at Rutgers actually as a student athlete. I got a sports scholarship to play at Rutgers. And save for that experience, I would not be here today. I was able to then get into medical school and really sort of was charging in the direction of becoming a doctor, quite frankly, Don and Kedar, without knowing what it actually meant to be a doctor. I had not really taken the time to 
Why did you want to be a doctor, Alistair, in the middle of all this? What was it about the clinical life or the medical profession that was interesting to you? So it was really my experience with my mom having cancer. She had metastatic breast cancer and she had chemotherapy and radiation and a bilateral mastectomy. And I didn't know what any of that meant, Kadar, until one day someone in the next room in our house was on the phone talking to my mom's boyfriend at the time was talking to someone on the phone and basically said, look, where does he go when his mom dies? And that to me was sort of the moment where it really came home to me how bad situation got. And these doctors who brought my mom back to me, they were like heroes. So that really was sort of the initiating moment for me. It really made me think if I were going to do anything in life, it would be something like this. It would be being a doctor so I can help kids get their moms back, help parents get their kids back. And it was just this sort of really incredible way to spend a life. Now, the issue with that kid is that when I got to third year medical school, I ran into the reality of the healthcare system is just broken. And I had a decision to make. Do I complain about this for the rest of my life or do I try and be part of the solution? And that is what triggered me to go to the Kennedy School, Don's alma mater, to get a master's in public policy and began sort of trying to identify what are the ways in which I might be part of the solution. What was it about the system that was broken that you were appreciating as a third year medical student, you said that something felt broken to you about the system that what was it that you were seeing or observing that felt out of place or didn't seem to be working the way it should be? Yeah. So I was actually lucky enough to do an internship early on in my medical school education. And the internship was sort of a business of medicine, let's call it internship. And I got some time to spend with a person in the hospital called the charge master. And this is a person who sets the prices for things like a, an aspirin or an IV or lumbar puncture. And what I came to find out over that summer internship was that the prices were different for people who did not have insurance. In fact, the prices were higher for people who did not have insurance. And that was one of the things that to me was a sort of this stark sort of wake up call that, man, we're charging people more money for the same procedures, same medications, if they do not have insurance. There's something backwards about that. If we're truly in the business of trying to take care of people, why is this about getting paid for a hospital and in a way that seems backwards and corrupt? Why was it happening? My understanding is that, and this comes back down to negotiating power, if I want a Tylenol at a hospital, right, and if I don't have insurance, it's just me that I have to sort of that the hospital has to negotiate with, right? But if I'm part of a big payer group and there are a million lives in that payer group, the payer group can negotiate a lower rate for that tunnel. And so I was, for the first time, I think, made aware of this reality that there's the business of medicine that is something we just don't get taught in medical school. So you became an ER doctor and you still are, but you decided to become also a certain kind of activist here where you're this inequity or the stuff you're talking about, you began to want to change it. So tell us a little about what you began doing. One of the things that I experienced in the emergency department early on, at least in my third year, and then moving forward from those early experiences was this demographic overlap, right? The idea that those who are most marginalized, those who really get the short end of the stick in our healthcare system, they're the exact same groups of folks who are not registered to vote the unregistered but eligible, of which in this country, we have over 60 million people who are unregistered but eligible voters. And when you look demographically, they tend to be at high proportions, people who are young, people of color and low-income Americans. These are the same groups that struggle with access to healthcare, that struggle with 
really getting the same kind of quality care that we expect of folks who have economic needs in this country. And so I began to think about, well, what is it about our current healthcare system that isn't working for the most marginalized? And I began to understand that the reason why we have these policies and laws in place are because we only have a small segment of our voting eligible population actually making their voices heard. We have 60 million voices that are not part of the conversation. And thus the laws and the procedures or the laws and the policies that we get out of that are reflective really of only a a segment of all of those in the American public. And so until and unless our voting population is representative of the total American population, we're going to get a system that doesn't work for everybody. So that began this sort of quest of thinking about how might we leverage healthcare settings as an opportunity to actually bring patients in and register them to vote and offer them opportunities to make their voices heard. Alistair, was there a particular moment where it became clear to you the process of registering someone in the healthcare setting or in the environment would be not only helpful for them from a voting perspective, but also helpful to their healthcare? Is there a moment in this story where you're like, God, this is why we need to do this? Yeah, it's a great question, Kiara. So one night I was taking care of a patient at Boston Children's Hospital. This is probably about six or seven years ago now. I was a third year emergency medicine resident. And I had a young woman come to the ER with her two children to Boston Children's. And she was in her early 20s. And her chief complaint in the EMR was something vague like evaluation or something like that. When the triage nurse just doesn't want to hear more and just sort of puts it on the clinicians to identify what's going on. So I go into the room and the patient says to me, look, doc, you know, I just moved here from another state. The father of my children had become abusive and you know, I moved in with an aunt here who lives in Boston. Mm-hmm. And things had been going well for the last two or three months, but in the last couple of days, her aunt's own medical issues and mental health issues started coming to the fore and the situation became unstabilized from an standpoint and the aunt kicked her and the kids out. So she says to me, doc, we were going to sleep outside tonight, but it's February and it was two degrees outside. And I looked back in my, the backseat of my van and I saw my three-year-old shivering and I heard his teeth chattering and I knew there was no way I was going to do that to them again today. So I came here, can you help me? And for the clinicians in the audience who are listening, you all will recognize that same feeling of feeling overwhelmed by what the patient needs, but also feeling this urge, this duty, this pull to help them. And so I did what most of us would have done in this case. Said, of course, we're going to help you. I exited the room and I called social work. Mm-hmm. So I called the social worker, says, no problem. We'll definitely help her. Massachusetts is a right to shelter state. She just needs some proof of residence and we'll get her into a hotel or a motel. No problem. So I go back in the room, say, you know, we can definitely help you. Do you have checks out a phone bill, something that shows that you're proof of, that you're a resident in Massachusetts? Mm-hmm. And she says, no. I say, okay, no problem. I called the social worker back. He says, all right, well, unfortunately, there's nothing we can do. If she's not a resident of Massachusetts, we're not going to be able to help her. I said, well, there's got to be something that we can do. And the social worker says, well, there is one thing. We can register her to vote. Hmm. And I said, well, what? <laughs> what do you mean we register her to vote? He says, yeah, her voter registration will count as proof of residence in the state of Massachusetts. And first thing I thought was, is this legal? You know, is this something that we can be doing out of a hospital? I said, yeah, of course, because the 1993 National Voter Registration Act hospitals can register patients to vote and they're actually encouraged to. So I went back, talked to the patient, said, look, we definitely help you, but I got to ask you sort of an unusual question. Do you want to register to vote? And her response to me, I'll never forget. She says, I didn't know I could. Hmm. No one has ever asked me that before. And that for me began sort of this process of thinking through, well, how many patients have I seen 
they're in the same exact position that feel on the outskirts of our democracy. And as we begin to look at this intersection, we find all through the literature examples of how your civic health or your voting participation, voter turnout scores is actually linked to physical health. Communities that voted higher rates also have higher health health. Alistair, why is a hospital in the 1993 act that you described, why was a hospital designated as a place to encouraged as a place to register people to vote? Yes, yeah, a good question, Kater. I think that at its core, the 1993 National Voter Registration Act was all about identifying opportunities to bring folks in to our democracy and offer them nonpartisan opportunities to register to vote. And healthcare facilities are an incredible place for that because you know we serve everybody. Right. Yeah, everyone has to go to an ER, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, independent, whatever. You got to go to your local hospital. Well, you might have to go to your local hospital. So that makes a lot of sense. In many ways, that the healthcare system is sort of the Ellis Island of our society, right? Everyone has to pass through. Take us back to the story of your patient. What happens to her? She registers that night, or what happens next? So after the sideways glance, she says, Yeah, of course, no problem. What do I have to do? So we register her to vote. And we're able to use that voter registration as proof of residence and we get her into housing, state-sponsored housing that night. So that experience really sort of kicked things off for me back in 2017 to begin to think about how might we create systems that are nonpartisan, that are totally optional, and that are non-interruptive that help patients register to vote in healthcare settings. And that led you to start something, something called Vote ER, which I've, can you tell us a little bit more about Vote ER and not only tell us about it, but also tell our listeners how they might find out more about it if they so desire. Yeah. So Vote ER, not only is it a cheesy dad joke name that I hope communicates to people what it actually <laughs> does, but Vote ER is a nonpartisan organization that helps hospitals, community health centers, FQHGs, and clinicians offer their patients the opportunity to register to vote. We create things like badge backers that are free for clinicians, posters for hospitals. We work with community health centers to send text messages to help patients take an opportunity to check their voter registration or register to vote. And across the country, we've registered or helped about 80,000 people get their mail-in ballots to vote in the 2020 election, 2022 election, and all the elections in between. And we have about 50,000 clinicians across the country who wear, I know that the audience can't see this, but I'm holding up my Healthy Democracy Kit, which is a kit you can get for free. It's a badge that you add onto your ID and it comes with this fancy lanyard. And you can go to voteervot-er.org backslash kit to get a kit for free and start helping your patients register vote. But also, Kira, I got to put a quick plug. Physicians, we have got to vote, right? Mm -hmm. So we've got a couple of very interesting studies, one of which done by a friend of mine, Hussein Ali, that demonstrated that physicians vote at lower rates than the average population. First, hmm. in the early 2000s, a study done demonstrated that we voted about 10% lower rates. And then a study that was just done about two years ago showed that we vote at even lower rates at 14% lower hmm. rates than the average population. So we've got to clean our act up first. Alistair, look, I got to do a little sanity check here. So you please, ER doc, you sew up wounds, you take x-rays and read them, you do resuscitations, you know, you're working. That's what being a doctor is. And suddenly you're telling a story about voting and voting registration. And if we could candle your brain, I mean, would we see that these are just two different vocations for you? Or is there some unification here, something in your mind that says this is healthcare, this is medicine, this is the mission? How do you think about this? You sound like you're off on a kind of limb here. 
Yeah, it's a really great question. So I hope I'm not off on a limb and I'm going to see if I can put together a cogent argument to back it up. Look, at the end of the day, if the listeners only take one thing away, it is this. Politics influences the care that we can give to our patients, period. And if you are not at the table in this country politically, you are on the menu. And let's just take a quick pulse check for the clinicians who are working or the healthcare administrators who are helping to run our healthcare system. The healthcare system is broken right now. Look at the burnout scores. Look at the attrition across all different types of clinicians. We are hurting because we are on the menu. And so at the end of the day, if it's true, if you take my assumption to be true that politics influences the care that we can give, well, then we must be in the business of empowering ourselves and also our patients to be part of the political process. And the first step of that is by helping them register to vote. It is sort of the least common denominator. You can do it in a nonpartisan way. You can help people express their civic duty. But let me take it one step further. You know, Don and Kira, there's a lot of conversation happening right now about the social determinants of health. It's a buzzword now. There's a lot of energy and attention. Can I take a minute just to explain to the listeners what they are or what? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the social determinants of health are what we'd refer to as the causes of poor health. So the patient who comes in to the ER with a health-related social need, let's say, you know, here in Boston, it's one degree outside, okay? So a patient comes to the hospital, to the ER with frostbite. That's their health-related social need. That's the issue that we are being asked to address. Well, you have to go up a level higher to understand, first of all, why does this patient have frostbite? The social determinants of health lens would have you see that the patient is homeless or is unstably housed. And so to really adequately address that patient's frostbite, you need to go up a level and begin to try and address how do we get this patient into a shelter or get them into a place where they're not outside freezing and the one degree cold. But here's the thesis that I want to leave folks with. And that is that if all you ever did was address at the level of the social determinants of health, you will be left to play whack-a-mole with these issues going from one issue to the next. Today, it's homelessness. Tomorrow, it's addiction. The next day, it's food insecurity. What I want folks to take away is we have to start thinking a level higher at the level of the political determinants of health, as Daniel Dawes puts it, the structural determinants of health. If the social determinants of health are the causes of poor health, we need to start addressing interventions at a higher level. The causes of the causes. Why is that patient homeless in the first place? What about the laws and the socioeconomic and the political climate made it possible for this person to become homeless? How do we address at that level and begin to change some of the structural issues that might prevent not just that patient being homeless, but the next dozen or hundred or thousand patients? Alistair, as you work in the emergency room, yep. how often in a day do you meet a patient that has in which the backstory that you're talking about, these social determinants is highly relevant? Is that like occasionally, but dramatically or like all the time? The data is actually pretty clear on this is very interesting. The number of non-urgent visits to the ER, you've got 100 people who come to the emergency room, how many of them need acute medical care? It's about 40% of those folks are non-urgent visits. These are people who don't have anywhere else to go, okay? They're coming to see me in the ER for a work note, for a refill of their prescription, or because they don't have a primary care doctor who can't access one. Not only is that care costly, but it actually also doesn't really need to be happening in the ER. Now, I welcome it. I invite those patients. But if we had a functioning healthcare system, if we had a functioning public policy system, those kinds of presentations would not show up in the emergency department. Does that help? 
but not every one of those is a social determined by social circumstance, right? I mean, somebody coming in for a med refill or for a work note may have a social determinant of health at play, but may not, right? I mean, so of the 40% that are non-urgent, that don't have an acute clinical need, not all of them are there for a social need of some kind, like your patient was that day in February some years ago now. I disagree, actually. I think that those patients are the exact examples of folks who have social terms of health issues. If you're here to see me for a med refill, it costs you $3,000 to come to see me in the emergency department. That's a failure of the system. One. What? $3,000? This is to be seen in an emergency department is an incredibly expensive phenomenon. And unfortunately, there's a lot of money being made, as you talked about in your recent piece, Don, right? So at the end of the day, as you talked about in the JAMA piece, the existential threat of greed in the US healthcare system, there's a lot of money being made delivering poor care. But let me come back to Kadar's point. Let's say you're right that of the 40%, some number of those folks are actually not really caused by failures in the social terms. But what about the patient with DKA who we're admitting to the ICU because she cannot afford her insulin and she's rationing it? That's diabetic ketoacidosis, which is a complication of diabetes if it's not being treated, right? Thank you, Don. Yeah. No, I don't disagree, Alistair, that substantial portion of that 40% is probably there for social reasons, doesn't, can't afford something, you know, medication, or, or frankly, it hasn't been explained to them how to take their insulin or otherwise, or there's a housing issue or a food insecurity issue or otherwise. But 40%, that's a huge number of visits to emergency rooms all over the country for reasons that are non-medical, essentially. And look, and by the way, look, I'm here for it. Kedar, I'm here yeah. for it. Let's, let's take care of them. But also, really, there's got to be a better way, right? Yeah. We've got the most expensive healthcare system in the world, and it is not amounting to anything. So we've got to do better, right? So, Alistair, walking in the shoes of some of our listeners, what if someone's listening to you and say, where's this guy coming from? You know, look at hospitals today. They're supposedly losing money. They don't have enough nurses. I mean, it's hard just to get their job done through the day. And now this guy's showing up and says, I want us to worry about voting. Is that realistic that the health distressed, overwhelmed healthcare system with not enough to do its job should extend its job and do this other stuff? What's your reaction to that? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think that, first of all, I'm sensitive and our organization is sensitive to the issues and the constraints and barriers and look, at the end of the day, the hospital's got a really important mission, which is to take care of patients. And that comes first over every other priority. What I would offer as a counter argument is there's a lot of conversation around health equity. And you look at the mission statements of hospitals all across the country, and many of them have included in those mission statements, the care of the underserved and vulnerable. If truly we are interested in caring for the underserved and vulnerable, it actually does not just end with writing them a prescription for their refill or giving them a work note. It also continues and extends out to empowering them to be part of the conversation that helps to shape the healthcare system that we live in. But I, I want to sort of forward this and double click on one thing that you said, Don, and that is around the way in which hospitals talk about addressing the issues of their community, and then actually do the actions or take action to address the issues in those communities. Many of your listeners are familiar with community benefits spending, this idea that nonprofit hospitals get a huge tax break. But the deal is they get a tax break if and only if they spend money taking care of the communities that they're part of. 
our listeners may or may not totally understand it. So Alistair, can you walk us through this a little bit? So many, many hospitals, more than half are nonprofit institutions, meaning that they, on their profits, there are no, it's not taxable income. In return for that, they have an obligation to return a percentage of their revenue to their communities. It's around 3% or so. That's sort of the deal that nonprofit hospitals have structured with localities, municipalities, the government. But how often is that realized? And how do hospitals record spending those community benefit dollars at this time? Exactly. No, I mean, look, implicit in this, and Kedar, thank you for teeing this up. Implicit in this deal is that nonprofit hospitals will get a tax break if and only if they take care of the communities that they're part of. But when we look at that, when we actually audit, is this happening? Actually, it's not happening to the degree that it is supposed to happen. And the data is pretty clear. 82% of private nonprofit hospital systems spend way, way less on charity care and community investment than they receive in tax breaks. So if we were to put all of that money in a pot, the total deficit is around $18 billion. That's $18 billion that could be going to communities for housing, for food insecurity, for access to addiction treatment and others. And shout out to the Lown Institute for doing this incredible analysis just a couple of weeks ago. But that's one of the things that we're struggling with, Don and Kedar, is that there's a lot of talk about health equity, a lot of talk about the social determinants of health, but it's not being met with action often. And so that's what I hope to leave some listeners with is that we've got to do more as organizers, as clinicians, as administrators to really help close the gap between our words and our actions at organizations across the country in the healthcare space. If I understand, you're kind of heading to double down or triple down on the vote ER with a whole new idea about a new organization to house this kind of action. Are you willing to give us a little bit of a peek at where you're headed next? Absolutely. But first, Don, I come bearing facts. Let's get the facts straight. When we think about lobbying spend, right, the amount of money that an organization or individuals put towards influencing the outcome of elections or laws. There's $500 million in lobbying spend across the top 10 highest spending health insurance and healthcare provider organizations. I'm not going to call any of them out, but the top 10 healthcare organizations and health insurance organizations, y'all know who you are. When we look at where the money is being spent, federal lobbying dollars, let's look at the facts, Don. Zero out of 10 of those 10 hospital and healthcare organizations reported lobbying spending on housing, on employment, on transportation, on education. Only two out of 10 reported spending on food insecurity. So I want to come back to what I said just a minute ago. There's a lot of talk about health equity. There's a lot of talk about social determinants of health. Show us the receipts. Show us what you're doing concretely to change the situation. So what we're doing with our organization with A Healthier Democracy is beginning to create a platform for the type of organizing at the healthcare provider level and organizational level to begin to change that narrative and to try and push on this current status quo, which is a lot of talk about health equity and a lot of talk about addressing social terms of health. But we've got to figure out ways to concretely change that. And so we create programs like VoteR, which give providers an outlet to meaningfully impact the political determinants health, or like Link Health where we put money in patients' pockets to pay for their internet so that we can do telehealth and telemedicine with them. Or like Get Out the Vaccine, an organization that uses political organizing tactics to bring vaccines to low-income communities and many other programs. The bottom line is the time for talk is over. It's time for action. 
So, Alistair, with this new organization, sort of an organizing effort of organizing efforts in some ways, what's your ambition here? What are you hoping to create? Is it an accountability question? Is it actually trying to hold health systems and payers or otherwise to account around whatever commitments they've declared in their mission statements, but maybe haven't fulfilled entirely? Or is it something different than that? Is it programmatic, specifically trying to achieve X movement of dollars to the the X number of communities? What are you hoping to accomplish here? It's a really great question, Kedar. Listen, I believe in a powerful vision of the future where healthcare providers are incredible change agents for good, for socially advantageous policies, laws that actually help to create and reshape the healthcare system such that it takes care of patients in the way that we all think it should. So I'll give you a concrete example. Right now, if you were to, for example, compare lawyers to doctors, which studies have done in terms of political behavior and voting behavior, physicians are somewhere on the order of 40 to 50% less politically active than lawyers. And so what if things were flipped? What kind of country would we have if we had just the same amount of political participation and engagement from our physicians? Rudolf Urkow said that physicians are the natural attorneys of the poor. And I believe that what we're trying to do at A Healthier Democracy is create outlets for physicians, for medical students, for nurses to take concrete action on issues that they identify. Why? Because we believe that those who are closest to the problems are closest to solutions. So if you have an idea for how we might be able to address food insecurity or how we might be able to address transportation or education, Right now, with that idea, it's hard for you to then scale it, to take it to the next level, to disseminate the idea. And so we want to be a place that makes it easy for folks who have ideas to jump in. We're going to get you the resources, get you the mentorship, and get you going. So you've got a distinguished record and a long future of this kind of activism, getting us more connected to the politics, to the dynamics of government and voting and policy, and you're using this new vehicle. I also know that you just spent a year in Washington as a White House fellow. So maybe we're running short on time, but if would you just reflect on that? What did you see there? What did you learn there about what's possible and what's not possible to get us back on track from a broken healthcare system to one that's going right through political processes? Well, the first thing I'll just say is my experience in the federal government left me with the impression that the federal government is the best way to help the most number of people in the most number of ways. And when we have solutions, interventions, programs that are working out there in our country. One of the beautiful things about you know, our country and the Federalist way that we approach things is that each of these states can be their own laboratories for innovation and their own laboratories for the creation of new interventions. If and when we identify innovative new interventions, programs, policies, I think it behooves us to try and identify ways to close the gap between what's working out there in Maryland and what could be done across the country. And so what I learned was sort of how do you take what you've created at a sort of small scale, like a program like VODR, for example, how do you then begin to transition that to cementing that in place with regard to either federal regulation or federal policy? And so I think what I'm left with is actually more hope than I had prior to coming in. I didn't really know how do you sort of go from creating something that works in a small contained institution and bridging that to something that might be disseminated across the country. And, and I think what I learned is how to pull some of those levers in a way that I didn't before. 
Alistair, I love your perspective on the federal government, having been just recently, until recently, deeply involved in the inner workings of how the federal government works and how it thinks about healthcare and policymaking in general. You saw the sausage making up close and your faith in it, I think, is really encouraging to so many. This is a time of when a lot of people have lost confidence in public sector and in the government in general. And it's just good to hear your reflection on the fact that there's good people at the steering wheel here that can help us go to good places. We like to ask almost every one of our guests here about your perspective on the future, your view of whether the future is bright for us in healthcare or not. I'd love to ask you that question as you begin this effort. And may I also ask you to restate the name of the new entity that you're creating, if it's ready, and how people could find you if they want to going forward. Absolutely. A couple of things just to bold and underline for folks. Let's help our patients register to vote. Let's make sure that we're registered to vote. You can get your kit at voteer.org slash kit. That's vot-er.org slash kit. The new initiative is called A Healthier Democracy, and it is an organizing hub for organizations like VoteER, and we have three other initiatives that are national initiatives trying to address issues in the social and political determinants of health. And we're eager to work with new med students, nurses, physicians, PAs, those who are interested in identifying ways we might create new interventions, starting locally, but then hopefully disseminating them nationally. To your question of how I feel about the place that we're in now, I got to say, it might sound crazy, but I'm incredibly, incredibly hopeful. When I zoom out, I look around the country and I see sort of magic bean stalks emerging all across this country. (laughs) And I think that we're entering what I hope to be like the golden age of community organizing in the healthcare sector. I think physicians are waking up. I think people are seeing, I think COVID really taught us this very simple message, which is that if you are not at the table, you are on the menu. How many of us, for the clinicians that are listening, had to rewear our N95s mm-hmm. day after day after day after day? How many of us had to wear garbage bags during COVID? And so we've got to take control and be responsible for how our healthcare system shows up and the policies and laws that make it up. So I'm incredibly eager. I think that all we have to do now is actually give people the training and the opportunity to really show the power that they have. And that is the fact that clinicians are incredibly bright, incredibly intelligent, and they care, right? Their hearts are in the right place. So I really, really am excited for the future. Well, there you have it, listeners. If you haven't found Alistair yet, find him at vote-er.org, as you mentioned, and a healthier democracy. You're an inspiration, Alistair, to so many. I know you're going to organize the organizers to have incredible effects going forward. And just a really incredible time with us here today. Thank you for joining us. And thank you for what you're doing to help us all become more active in our communities going forward. Thank you, Kato. I really appreciate you. And just want to say a quick shout out to Don, who has been an advisor and just a mentor of mine since my days way back at the Candy School. So really appreciate you, Don, and really would not have been able to do any of this without your guidance and your counsel. So thank you very, very much. Back at you, Elster. What you're doing motivates everybody. So thank you for tying the banner. Appreciate you. So what are your thoughts, Kate, are listening to Alistair? I love his enthusiasm and his passion for wanting to change the system. I was really struck by his faith in the government. I love the fact that he has the sense that actually there is tremendous power and possibility in the federal government. I think that's very reassuring, frankly. I also like this idea that if you're not 
at the table, you're on the menu. That notion really struck me that there's a phenomenon at play here that if we're not active, we're actually not listening and we're not paying attention. And it's not enough to just sit on the fence kind of thing, you know, get off the fence and pick a side and play the game. It's not enough to just wait for the solution to come your way. I loved his impatience about the social determinants of health topic. I heard him say, yeah, we know that. We know that. Now it's time to do. And I think that's pretty fair. I think there's really, actually, there's decades now of research and data on all the stuff that makes us sick. And, you know, you and I and others are fully aware that we'll never get healthy with healthcare. It just can't do it. Healthcare is like a repair shop. It's after the fact, especially if the problems lie in the domains that he's been talking about. So he's saying, okay, almost pounding the table, let's get started in doing stuff. Mm-hmm. So the, the idea of voting is one of those things. And here's a guy willing to go out and get it started. I also notice he's a particular kind of doctor that I think we're seeing more and more, I'll call a bridge builder or connecting across some kind of chasm because he's perfectly comfortable seeing himself as an ER doctor, doing the best he can to take care of patients, individual patients, bearing that responsibility gladly and connecting across, in his case, to voting and political activism and yep. getting engaged with the social determinants. I think actually we need more of those. I see that all the time now, Don. I mean, I, in the residents and students that I have a chance to interact with, I see more and more of that kind of bridge building that you're describing, that kind of cross, actually they're cross-trained in many cases. I mean, Alistair is trained as a physician, but also as a public policy expert and that type of formal cross-training, but also informal cross-training between your experience as a clinician, perhaps, and your experience as a community advocate or activist or otherwise. I mean, that type of phenomenon of multidimensionality, I think, is increasingly common. Maybe it's part of what medical and nursing schools are recruiting for or helping to build. But And I'm particularly interested in this idea of organizing. I think there's something in the water right now, maybe sponsored or provoked by the pandemic, where doctors are seeing the need to advocate, nurses as well, to advocate for themselves, to build not just advocacy around wages and benefits, but advocacy to help doctors and nurses do the things that matter to them, take care of their patients better, which I think is a different kind of organizing than the one that's just purely focused on self-interest in terms of my pay or my benefits and so on as a clinician. So that seems different to me now than before. Yeah, it's going to be a bit of tests of our disciplines. Are we willing to maybe change our lobbying sites a little bit, as he's saying, and starting to lobby for the stuff that makes people healthy in addition to, or may I say, even sometimes instead of pay and benefits? The other thing you said, which I want to just emphasize, it's not just doctors, that we will be making a big mistake if we regard this leadership challenge as a physician only when it's physicians, nurses, pharmacists. It's also managers, executives, technicians, people who work in healthcare much stronger together than separately. And so you and I have talked on about this phenomenon in the past of the fact that whatever's in the water at the moment is very interesting because for the first time ever, not only are patients unhappy, clinicians are unhappy, but really importantly, and clinicians of all dimensions, right? Doctors, nurses, social workers, respiratory therapists, pharmacists, you know, the whole range of clinicians now, lots of studies documenting their frustration with the system as is. But we also have this phenomenon now of administrators, people in leadership roles, being deeply dissatisfied with the fact that they're creating conditions that are not supporting better patient care and outcomes. And I think that phenomenon of all three stakeholder groups being upset and dissatisfied with the way systems built, that to me is a crucible in which real change can happen. On that last point, maybe it's something we should inquire more of. I am getting the sense, I'm not totally sure about it, that 
executives, boards, people that are in these high-level leadership positions in healthcare organizations, at least some are starting to get the feeling that maybe they're not doing it right. I don't want to overstate it. I don't have the facts to support it's an impression, but you're right. That amazing coalition could come to exist between the kinds of activism on the clinical side that Alistair represents and maybe some executives and boards of directors who say, we need to reboot here. We're uh, proud of what we do when we transplant an organ or do something audacious and dramatic in treating cancer, but it's not going to get the health job done. Let's look at the mission statement on our wall. Maybe we got to rewind a bit here and start to think about a wholly different kind of set of investments. That would be very exciting. Be nice to seek out some executives to help us think that through a little more. We should absolutely do that. And I think it, it was great to get this start with Alistair. I'm looking forward to seeing what his organizing of organizers, where that'll end up. And we'll stay on top of that story and see if we can bring it back at some point to learn what happens. All right. Until next time. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Turn on the Lights, where we're trying to shed light on the thorniest problems and the most innovative solutions in healthcare. We'd like to help you understand. To listen to more episodes or find the show notes and other resources, please visit us at IHI.org. Thank you.